Welcome to Foreman of Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. Cindy, this is our Thanksgiving part deux. I love it. Part, part two. So French. So we spent so much time uh, on last week's program on <laughs> some of the details. But sauerkraut. <laughs> I didn't recognize that awesome. it. That was the, the leading point of interest. Yeah. It was kind of like a sauerkraut. Cookery. It yeah. was a sauerkraut show, which is people okay. had feelings about sauerkraut. It was fun. It was great. It was excellent, and mm-hmm. so we wanted to spend time on a few more recipes, but also a lot on, frankly, a lot of people's favorite part of it, which is having a couple of glasses of something good, mm-hmm. sharing it with family, sharing it with friends. You know, that's the booze, the hooch, the. What, the you, fun. You don't have to make a declasse. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I'm sure there aren't any families out there. Trying to keep it sophisticated over here. Trying to be sophisticated. <laughs> oh, come on. So, well, and we will have with us uh, uh, from from Champagne, uh, the Champagne House, Gosset, uh, marvelous house, the oldest house in Champagne. Their brand manager for the U.S., is going to join us on the second segment and take some questions and tell the story of that a bit. Mm-hmm. Because frankly, and obviously going into the holidays, beginning with Thanksgiving, champagne is on the brain. Exactly. And, and uh, if nothing else in the last year and a half, you, you, everyone wondered about the mortality a little bit, maybe a little bit more than they normally would. Mm-hmm. The last thing you want to do is have a mediocre glass of wine for your last one, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I've thought about that a lot. Mm. So uh, we'll we'll talk with her in the second segment. All right. But what were the, the the main things that you feel like you didn't get to? You got you got a regular stuffing recipe last time. Mm-hmm. You didn't talk about cooking turkey, did you? I think we did. We talked a little bit about putting butter under the skin. We talked about that. Um, but you know, I mean, I think. We can talk a little. We can talk a little turkey. Here, besides the besides a little bit of a turkey reprise, um, I always think about why not other birds. Oh, I'm all for other other birds. I mean, I, I, okay, of course, tr- turkey is our tradition, but I mean, it's not my favorite bird, quite frankly. I feel my, especially my fa- grateful when I eat guinea fowl. Oh yeah, I know you love that. So do I. I love all the birds. I'm I I but you're right. I mean, I know you like the guinea fowl because of the fat, but and the flavor obviously. Um but guinea fowl is a nice bird too for Thanksgiving because it's a bigger bird. It'll serve more people. I mean, obviously it's not an 18 pounds bird, but I guess they average what 3 to 4 pounds, but um uh you know, guinea fowl is great uh if you want to uh have some, you know, whole lineup. It could be such a beautiful, you know, presentation of food in the center of the table with, you know, 12 little quails on there. Everybody gets their own quail. Um, I think that would be lovely. Uh, squab is such a delicious bird. And, you know, you don't have to cook it. Very- That's the other thing. You're talking about the difference in, you know, hours and hours of roasting a turkey. And a quail takes all of about six minutes to cook, six to eight minutes. And a squab, if you debone it, uh, it's a uh, less than six minutes to get to medium rare because that's how we like to eat squab. Um, if you like to cook it more than that, you know, it's only going to be a couple more minutes. So the portions are so much smaller um, and, you, and you need multiple birds, obviously, for multiple people, but uh, such great flavor. And gosh, all the stuffings are so good with that too. I mean, all the accompaniments that we all love so much and the things that are maybe traditional to your family, 
I mean, I can't imagine that they wouldn't go just as nicely with any of these birds. So, you know, um, you have guinea fowl, quail, squab. What else comes to mind? If that was a duck, Mm. you could drink that cab. That'd be really quite nice. Yes. But I think that the origin of the holidays, they were grateful that they had plenty to eat. Sure, you know? of course. Yes. So that, and what was the biggest thing available? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it was the turkey, right? Well, it was everywhere. So back but, then, yeah. But there's, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's time for duck. So no, it's, an, it's a bird, not? obviously. Though it's not as romantic to say Thanksgiving duck. You know, I would love to have duck for Thanksgiving. First of all, again, it's a bigger bird. So you're feeding more people from one bird or two birds. And um, that fat is just so darn good. And it's so good as it roasts. And if you're going to roast a whole bird and a whole duck in the oven, um, you want to score the fat a little bit so that 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 uh, score the skin, excuse me, season it nicely. I would definitely put citrus in there. Someone asked me the other day about putting citrus in a cavity on the turkey. And uh, I don't do that, but on a duck, you bet. I would put blood oranges in there or regular oranges in there. You, um, I, I wouldn't do lemons or limes, but I would absolutely put oranges inside of a, of a duck. Um, you could put garlic cloves in there, a little rosemary. Um, it might be fun to put cinnamon stick in there if you have the orange in there. Uh, that could be really pretty. And if nothing else, if it doesn't permeate the bird or help the bird, it sure is going to help your house smell delicious and get everybody just like, woo, can't wait for that you, duck. Think, thinking about the, the stuffing for a duck, I was just thinking, you roasted duck and you made a stuffing with morcilla, lots of garlic and morcilla, mm. that Spanish blood sausage. Mm-hmm. And then like a big, rich Rebelo Duero, oh. you know, one of those, one of those robust Tempranillos, mm-hmm. Bordeaux sized, almost, you know, almost California Cabernet sized, but great flavors for that. Now that I, I would be into Thanksgiving duck. That sounds really good. The Morcia, that would be so, so uh, phenomenally when flavorful such a and exciting. Savory, particular mm-hmm. flavor to it. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, that. Yes, I was thinking about, you know, birds. I guess it's funny. What do you call a dozen quail or a group of quail? Is it a flock? I don't know, but or I know it, a brace of quail is two quail. So Yeah, but that's a brace of anything. Mm-hmm. There are crazy crows all around my house. Ooh, don't eat those, uh, Tony. All, all autumn. <laughs> no, but you know a big group of a big, big group of crow are called a murder of crows. Oh. Yeah. Wow. No, I didn't know that. Cheery. Yeah. Cherry tidbit. I don't. Okay. Anyway, back to Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> and then also thinking about the sweet potatoes that everyone does that are maybe not the most interesting thing. Okay. Well, I, there are a couple of different ways you could make the sweet potatoes. You could do just pretty simply with butter and cream, salt and pepper. Um, I like to add a little bit of cinnamon, salt, to the water when I cook my sweet potatoes, just a little bit of ground cinnamon, not much. You don't want them to suddenly turn into cinnamon potatoes. Um, just a, you know, a little sprinkle. And, um, and then when I go to uh, puree them through the food mill and then we add the cream and the butter, we will add uh, a little bit of Gosling's rum, brown sugar, salt and black pepper, and then maybe a little bit more cinnamon if we feel it needs it. But you could go in a different direction. Um, for example, chili powder. It just a very, you know, just cook the sweet potatoes in salted water. And then when you go to do your process to puree them, you could add a little bit of chili powder and butter 
and uh, a tiny bit of cream. I, I think you want to be light on the cream if you're going to use the chili powder. Um, but I think that might be a lot of fun. Or you don't have to puree them. And you could do a gratin dish of roasted sweet potatoes. Uh, that I think I would do a, a neutral oil like corn oil, a little bit of salt and pepper, and then I would definitely try adding chili powder to the roasted ones. I think that would be absolutely delicious. And the other thing you could do is a gratin dish. Tony was talking about this the other day, and I, I didn't do it, but I was thinking, you know, if you slice the, the sweet potatoes and do a little bit of cream uh, in there and salt and pepper, uh, you could do just a gratin dish of them. Uh, I wouldn't add cheese or anything to it. I think that would be really weird with sweet potatoes, but I think you could have something that's really easy to prepare so you don't have all the steps of, oh, let me boil these and season water and then rice them and then add some stuff to them and then run them through a tammy or pass them through a tammy which is a fine sieve you know the gratin dish of is a lot easier than uh, going through all that to puree them the other one of my favorite side dishes is to do other to root vegetables the celery act thinly sliced carrots thinly sliced sort of on a bias uh, parsnips done the same way everything needs to be the same thickness um, and that doesn't mean they all cook at the same time but you at least want them to be the same thickness which will help you get them to cook uh, together nicely and that's corn oil light salt uh, light pepper and light sugar and just roast those you know laid out on a sheet pan in the oven so they're one thin layer and at like 325 degrees it usually takes about 20 minutes and that's a wonderful side dish especially if you are doing a bird like magre or if you're doing the quail or the squab i mean it's great with a turkey but those those are stronger flavors they will do really well with one of the more flavorful birds in your perfect world this year which bird are you consuming for thanksgiving Oh, I would have squab. If I had my choice, well, honestly, I would have squab and quail. I would do both because I just, I love them both so much. I love the the sweetness of those birds. Um, I just love, I love the legs. I, I love the legs of both of them. I, I could, I could give somebody the little breast and they could eat mine and I would take their legs if they wanted to trade. I, I just, I could, I, it's just so good. And that's the problem with turkey. I don't feel that way about turkey at all. I'm not excited to eat turkey. I'm sorry, but it's just, it's true. I, I don't know what it is, but, and the thing too, I, the, my favorite part of roasting a turkey is making stock from the bones. I love turkey stock. That's really what I love about Thanksgiving and turkey. My last food comment on Thanksgiving is, I love the turkey like confit you make. Mm -hmm. And for me, Thanksgiving, after all of these years of, of serving it, Mm -hmm. is that confit with hop and john <laughs> and collards yeah you know and and, and a, a little bit of hot sauce that's to me that's yeah and i i know that's not what people think of as, as traditional thanksgiving but that's been my traditional thanksgiving you know at at 11 o'clock at night when everyone's right. gone <laughs> exactly and, and you're eating re leftovers from the restaurant preparations you know and that's it's so it's so easy i mean it really is it's, it's not hard food to to yeah and I always want Alsace wine. So when we get to our third segment, I want to spend a little bit of time on wines from Alsace because it ends up being a forgotten thing. And Thanksgiving, the holidays, winter cooking is a good time to get into it. So maybe we'll spend a few minutes and do a bit good. of a primer mm -hmm. on, on Alsace. But can you throw a word in about gravy? Yes. All right. What, what, what it actually could be, should be. Okay. So I have watched my mother all of my life deglaze the roasting pan with water. Well, actually she'll, she'll, she'll literally dust flour in there, 
all the drippings from the pan, use a little whisk and scrape it around and add water. And she, that roasting pan is on the stove. It's starting to come up to a boil that cooks for like, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes. And then she strains it and that's our gravy. And my mother is a very good cook. Uh, that that's just the way she was taught. And I think a lot of people probably do that. Um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but we could make it better if you want to. So if you are in a situation where you want to cook the turkey the day before and do what we do, which is we then break it down, we, we have to undercook it a little bit because obviously our situation is, well, it's sort of similar to home in a way because you're going to hold your turkey in the oven too, waiting for your guests, right? It's warming up in there. So you don't want it cooked all the way through or when you go to heat it up, it's going to overcook and dry out. So slightly undercook it and then cut it off, cut the, you know, if you're confiting the legs or, or if you're just roasting the whole bird, go ahead and cut the legs off. So once the bird has cooled down, you know, after you've cut the breast off the bone, uh, the legs off the bone, and um, that has cooled down properly, then you can, you can wrap that and refrigerate it and have it ready for the next day. And then now you put the car, you break the carcass apart some, you know, just kind of rip it apart with your hands, you can use a knife to cut through part of it, or if you have a cleaver, uh, you can start to break up some of it. You don't have to go into small, small pieces, but obviously it needs to be manageable for you and your pot. Um, and you want a nice heavy bottom stainless steel sauce pot or stock pot, preferably, and um, put all the uh, put those bones back into the oven for a couple of minutes to brown. So it, it's all brown nicely. And I don't mean, I mean golden. Let's use the word golden. Um, so we're looking for light color on that whole carcass. And then that goes into the soup pot and the stock pot. You add mirepoix, carrot, celery, and onion, a little bit of bay leaf, a little bit of black peppercorn, and about, say, four inches above the level of the bones. That's how much water you want to have in that pot. And it needs to be cold water going into that pot. And what will happen is you turn your burner on to high. You let that... Uh, you let all that uh, impurities that might be in those bones, which in a turkey, they're very few. It's not like you're doing, you know, veal leg bones for stock, but you will come up with some impurities and you're certainly going to come up with a little bit of fat. So the cold water will allow all that to rise to the top in the form of scum and fat. And then you can, uh, you know, use a ladle and remove that from the top, discard it, and then uh, turn it down to the lowest simmer and make a beautiful stock. And then when the stock, you know, let's say three hours later, your stock is just gently, gently cooked and it's really beautiful, strain it, reduce it down until it has good flavor. So I would say you're probably gonna reduce it down by about a quarter. There is no way you can reduce that down and get to a, to a, a turkey reduction because it will become, it doesn't have enough gelatin in the bones to produce a viscous sauce. So you have to add a roux to it. Roux is butter and flour used as a thickening agent, and you want a blonde roux, so a, a, a lightly cooked roux on the stove. That should be cold because you're going to go into this hot reduced stock and thicken it lightly. Don't overdo it. Think Add a little bit of roux to that beautiful uh, somewhat reduced stock and cook it out for 30 minutes. You always cook a roux out for 30 minutes, which is why I made the comment about when my mom would just kind of add the flour and whisk, and you know, like 10 minutes later, she had gravy. You know, it's it's very important to cook out that flour, raw flour f flavor from your sauce. It would be much finer. And um, and then, yeah, and then strain it and taste it. Might need a little salt or might need a little pepper. And you have should have a gorgeous gravy. I hope that everybody got that down. <laughs> In our next segment, we're going to pivot from some of the other Thanksgiving details. 
And we're going to spend some time with Kimberly Bowden uh, from Champagne Gosset, the topic of champagne and the holidays and why it's perhaps not just this time of the year, one of the more useful wines in the entire world. I mean, if you like to be happy. All of that and more on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine on WIPR. Welcome back to Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And today it's Thanksgiving part deux. <laughs> so some, some of the things we didn't get to when we were on that sauerkraut concentrating program mm-hmm. last week. Right. And uh, which was a runaway winner as far as topics. <laughs> and, uh, and we're trying to make sure that we focus on, uh, for me, some of the real fun beverage. And what is the most fun? Champagne. Yes. And so in a completely greedy move on my part, I contact a champagne house that I love, and I know you love as well, Cindy. I do. Uh, to get a little bit of information, uh, inspiration, history. And so we have with this Kimberly Bowden, uh, the national brand manager for Gosset in the U.S. Gosset is the oldest house in champagne, isn't it, Kimberly? Indeed it is. It's um, actually a unique point that they are the oldest documented wine house uh, that goes back to 1584. What's fascinating is we all think of champagne with bubbles, right? And we love those bubbles. But of course, the region back in the 1500s, they were making still wine. Uh, the kings of France loved the still red wines of champagne. And so that documentation, that evidence of making champagne go say, was actually evidence of making Gosset wine uh, back in 1584. There are other um, houses who can say, okay, well, we made bubbles first, and Champagne Gosset certainly joined them, but they are the oldest wine house in Champagne dating back to 1584 um, and family-owned the entire time, which that's is pretty great. incredible. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, how many generations is that? It's, I was, it's funny. I was just thinking about that. You know, we're coming to these family holidays and uh, I certainly can't count back um, 17 generations of my family. Uh, I just can't. Mm-hmm. But that is, there are, the, the winery is still family-owned. The family actually transitioned to another family in the um, mid-90s. But it's 16 generations of Gosset and uh, one generation of another historic French family, the Renault Cointreau family, who owns Champagne Gosset today. And so uh, tell us about it. What makes it? Uh, particular and special? What, it, what it, in your perspective, you know, are the leading characteristics of Gosset? And, and what, so, it, what is the range? You know, what is the, uh, what the French call tout la gamme of what's produced? <laughs> so Champagne Gosset um, really focuses on their non-vintage cuvées, which most, most of us here in the U.S., that's what we're familiar with. That's what we buy. That's what we bring. They're glorious wines. And the reason for that is because the weather in Champagne historically has not been quite as beautiful as, say, Napa, California, where I live. Um, and you don't get a great vintage every year. But if you can blend across and take advantage of some of the best vintages, you can make ridiculously beautiful non-vintage bubbles, which is what Champagne Gosset excels at. They absolutely make vintage as well. 
Um, but I know Tony's very familiar with the Grand Reserve, which is the heart of their range that really represents their style. And again, going back to sort of the historic nature of Champagne Gosset, one of the things that's unique is if you look back, they have stuck with their style. There's a lot of wonderful champagne out there, but what makes Champagne Gosset unique, as their current cellar master, Odilon de Varenne, says, they try to preserve everything the grape has to offer. The reason they do that is because they get their grapes from some of the best Grand and Premier crews in the best regions of Champagne. For those who know, the Côte de Blanc, the Grand Valais de la Marne, the Montagne de Rance. Uh, so if you're going to go and, quite frankly, spend a lot of money on very, very swanky and delicious grapes, it makes sense to keep everything they have, Right. Let's avoid that malolactic conversion. Keep the malic acid that was there. Let's ferment at really low temperatures. So if there are unique aromatics that come from a particular terroir or crew, they stay there. And then because grapes that you pick for sparkling wine are very high acid, right? So it could be a little bracing if you just fermented that. It might be a little bracing for some of us. What this family is able to do is allow them to lie in the cellars for a, a much longer time than is mandated in Champagne, often three times what's mandated. And the result of that is you take that freshness and those really unique characteristics from the grapes and you add a wonderful texture and complexity to it. And that's what makes the finished wine this incredible balance of freshness, but also some um, complexity and almost an energy. And that's, that's what makes it such a great glass. Yeah, I think of Gosset as being very, very true to the actual tradition of Champagne as far as its production. A lot of, uh, a lot of houses, and especially bigger houses, frankly, have, have just have a much more straight production mentality. And, and the, the end product... There's a consistency. I mean, having tasted, I've, you know, tasted vintage data wines from Gosset back to the 50s, and there's a there's a great consistency of the texture you spoke of, um, and and a breadth and a richness that only comes from time in the cellar. Now, I'm, I'm curious, what are you all saying now, as far as the sources and the blend typically, in say the Grand Reserve? Absolutely. And first of all, Tony, you're spot on. And I am a little envious of that um, experience going back to the 50s. Uh, they really are glorious wines. Uh, one of the things, actually, before I answer your question about Grand Reserve, that I will say, I didn't get to go back to the 50s, but I did taste some glorious wines. They were Grand Reserves that primarily came from the 80s. The freshness, when you make wine this way, when there's so little manipulation, the freshness remains, and it is mind-boggling. So what are they doing today? Well, many of the places they're sourcing are still um, relationships that went back to a time when they owned vineyards. That changed in the, right around World War II uh, during Andre and Suzanne Gosset's tenure. They split the company into a vineyard-holding company and the company that today is Champagne Gosset that sells the wine but they still have relationships that, are, that go back before that time. So those vineyards, when we look at Grand Reserve and we kind of take it apart, um, you get some incredible sort of minerality, almost an iodine component that Odilon, the cellar master, talks about. And that is from, uh, although I will say the, the sum is greater than the parts, but places like Auger, 
um, in the Cote de Blanc bring that minerality. Uh, I've often had people talk to me about, wow, the, the texture, the sort of um, the, the depth of this wine. Well, there's a little bit of the very well-known Grand Cru Le Menil sur Auger uh, in this every year as well. And then you've got great spots like Ai, uh, which is the original home of the family. Their first winery was in Ai. They still have cellars there as well as their cellars in Epernay. And that brings a lovely sort of mid-palate so that as you take a, a sip of wine, and Tony, I know you know this for sure, you get those aromatics first that lure you in, you take the sip, and it rolls all the way through your palate, and you get some different experience all the way through in your mouth, and you don't want any holes, for lack of a better word. And so uh, the wine is sourced from, as I said, crews in, in, in all three of these kind of key spots in Champagne, Cote Blanc, Grand Ballet de la Marne, and Montan de Rance, and they bring together and make this incredible wine, but they do each contribute uh, different different bits, whether it's energy or roundness or depth. Now, I always think of, of Gosset's wines as being, not every house is this way, but being very layered, where there, where there are high notes. There is that, you know, the, the, the soprano sources like Auger, but with great power, uh, sources that provide, provi with a lot of Pinot providing that mid-palate, and then some unexplicable, and maybe mostly from the time in the cellar, that the sort of baritone that lies underneath that, that gives a solidity and, and a color to everything. You're exactly it, it, right. This is a blend of primarily Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So to your point, you know, structure coming from Chardonnay, Pinot Noir bringing more of that body. But there's a little bit, um, it's usually about 10%, Pinot Meunier, and that brings a beautiful fruitiness and roundness. Uh, that specifically comes from Ovier. Uh, in the um, Grand Valley de la Marne. So it's the, what the winery does is when they harvest, they keep all of their lots separate. So if you are bringing in Le Menil, it keeps the sep it ferments in its own tank. When it's time to blend the cuvee in the spring, they do it blind. And so to your point, I think, Tony, when you talk about uh, those high tones and sort of the, the layers, it's because when you're not using a recipe, right, when you're figuring out each year, What's the right amount of each of these to make our wine and to deliver the wine we want to deliver uh, to our customers? It, you're going to get there if you're not just saying, okay, well, this is what we did last year. Let's do it again this year. Because every vintage is different. That bit of Pinot Meunier that comes from Aubier, uh I know at least it, as of the last time I visited Gosset, that they had the same source for that as Dom Perignon has in Aubier. And Dom Perignon has been able to buy everyone else out of their contracts <laughs> for that source, except for you guys, which yeah. is kind of a crazy hard-headedness that I appreciate because I think that's an important element. Oh, absolutely. And, and also just such an, a great example of the history. It's, it's such a historic region, so fascinating. Kimberly, in, in your visits to France and, and having the opportunity, I'm sure, to have French chefs making food for your wines, what have been some of the dishes that you, you thought, oh my gosh, this is just incredible, this pairing, uh, or something perhaps that might have surprised you that went really well with Gosset that you hadn't, hadn't experienced before? would love to hear that. So uh, the French pairings, as you have said, Cynthia, are outstanding, right? They, they do a beautiful job. Um, 
I will say two of the surprises have actually happened in this country, but there I, I do remember this really unique, um, I'm going to say something semi-blasphemous. I'm not a super fan of lobster. I love <laughs> crab, which is handy for where you are. Um, but I'm not a super fan. But they served this role of very, very finely diced, like tiny dice of mm-hmm. lobster with something that's lighter than mayonnaise and in the very thinnest sheet of almost a pasta, but obviously we're in France, and so, Cynthia, maybe you can tell me what that might have been because I wouldn't think it was pasta. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was glorious. With, it, was just, it, was, um, it, was, it was obviously very well-balanced food, but it was glorious with the wine. My, one of my revelations with Champagne Gosset was around their Grand Rosé, and it was a restaurant in San Francisco that served a salad with, um, with raspberries and a raspberry vinaigrette uh, that was sweeter than I would have thought you would want to pair with the Grand Rosé, because obviously it's a very dry wine, and it was a ridiculously good pairing. It, it, mm-hmm. it, was, it was fascinating that it it paired so well. That kind of, that kind of brings me to the, the point that I was going to get to. I think of champagne as being the, the real secret weapon. And yes, there are other lovely sparkling wines in the world, but champagne is because of that, the, the brilliance and the breadth and the richness of it is that secret weapon for Thanksgiving because it can handle so many different things. And there are sweet flavors and there are delicate flavors and there are rich flavors. You know, there, there, there are so many interpretations, right? You're going, you're going from, you know, turkey breast to collard greens to candy sweet potatoes to, you know, biscuits and jam and like all, all kinds of things, right? So how about at, at your house for Thanksgiving? What, what do you look forward to and what wine will you serve with it? Well, okay, so you have clearly stolen my thunder because I – I am an absolute bubbles aficionado, and I like you. I believe it does it. It pairs with almost everything, right? Because it lifts a meal. I love champagne because you can start with it. Maybe it's a little aperitif. Maybe you know we're finishing off the the gravy a bit, and we just want to make sure it's good before we we go and serve <laughs> the meal. There's enough lightness to the wine that I can sip this as I'm having a little bit. And then to your point, it, it's going to go through the entire meal. It will pair with the sweet. It will pair with the savory. Um, we're pretty traditional. You know, we do turkey and stuffing and green beans. Um, we like a good apple pie at the end. And it's champagne. We are generally drinking champagne with that, with that meal. It's funny. One of the, one of the first things, just talking to, to um, champagne producers years and years ago, the, one of the first things that anyone ever said to me was that champagne, no matter what, there are apples there. They could be golden, they could be green, they could be red, they could be all different tones, they could be all different varieties, but somewhere there are apples. And the dessert I like at Thanksgiving the best is anything apple, especially some kind of apple pie or, you know, top of the pyramid, ta-ta-ta, Right. And champagne for that, 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 that particular dessert is the essence of apples. And champagne is the spirit or the mystery of it. You know, I love that connection. 
I couldn't agree more. Also, because you've got that wonderful, and Cynthia can speak to this too, all those the baked pie notes, right? The, the crust, that caramelization, mm-hmm. and often there's a little echo of that in champagne as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's amazing to have a wine that can stretch through a meal that way, which doesn't mean people shouldn't experiment, but, but it's great to feel confident that you can put that on the table and, not, and, and have it work. Mm-hmm. The Absolutely. Yeah, there's not many other wines that can go from sushi to lamb, right? So, Exactly. <laughs> to fried chicken. Yeah. Right. Exactly. One of the best things. Well, Kimberly, thanks so much for coming on with us and talking about uh, Champagne Gosset. I hope you have a terrific holiday. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a great chat. And Happy when you want to eat some crab, you know where to come. <laughs> I certainly yes. do. I love crab. So, so yeah. I'll be there. Cheers. Thank you, ma'am. Cindy, it was great talking with Kimberly about yeah. Gosset. There's nothing yes. that lifts your mood like a in-depth discussion of champagne. I agree. You know how much I love champagne, too. So that was really fascinating and wonderful to hear from her. So for the next segment on Formidable Phone Food and Wine, Cindy and I will be drinking many glasses of... I guess that's probably not allowed. <laughs> well, we'll we'll think about it anyway on WIPR. <laughs> Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy, you know what I'm going to ask you about? Uh, no. Dessert. When I met you, oh. <laughs> dessert. When I met you, dessert was not your favorite. No. No. You were like, eh, I don't need sweets. I don't. I still I don't. don't. I, uh, I still don't. I, I don't I like buy cheese. that. Mm. I don't buy that. You love food so much, but you're very, very, very particular about things as you should be, and that's very reasonable. With pastry, I think I've seen you flip out about a few pastries mm. over the decades. Mm-hmm. For Thanksgiving, what pastries would you ask? Because there's some people, like my youngest daughter, if it's sweet, she's all about it, she's going to be really happy. Mm-hmm. You know, My older daughter is a bit like you, where she's like, I want to bite of something good. It's got to be really good. And then I'm fine. Thank you. What is that? What is that magical combo of Thanksgiving desserts that's going to take you over the top? Chocolate souffle. The traditional Thanksgiving <laughs> chocolate souffle, ladies and that's, gentlemen. That's a dessert. God I can bless. Get, oh, I could get really excited about chocolate yeah, let's souffle. Yeah, let's get Aunt but Ruth instead, in the kitchen to help make the chocolate souffle. Good but Lord. instead of that, I mean, I have to say, I, I really do. My mom used to make a really great pumpkin pie. Um, she also used to make, um, uh, a, a walnut cake, which when I was little, I hated because I can't, couldn't stand nuts in anything, but, um, ah, that walnut cake that she would make because of course the walnuts were around. So that's why they would make that cake. And it had some sort of, I forget what they called it. It was like a, what do they call it? A white ice box icing or something. I'm sure it was straight out of you, Betty you, Crocker's cookbook you, from You know what that icing is, right? Cause I know that. Icing. Oh, it's like all Crisco and sugar, probably powdered sugar, probably. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's it's well, powdered sugar, water, lemon, and sometimes fat. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes Crisco. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, there is a well, and 
I mean, traditionally, that would be my favorite. I really do like a very good pumpkin pie. I like, I like, as we were talking to the caller, uh, you know, the other day, um, I, I like a really good sweet pastry dough. I like it to taste like cookies. I like it to have that texture, almost a sable texture where it's like sand. That's what sable means in French. You mean, you mean cookies? Yeah, cookies, pretty much. So <laughs> if I was going to have a pumpkin pie, I would want it to have that kind of crust. I would also want it to have a sauce. I mean, I don't like pie without a sauce. So I'm going to need some creme anglaise on there or really good, you know, creme chantilly, you know, which is basically whipped cream. Um, or I love meringue. So how fun would that be to do meringue on your pumpkin pie? I mean, it's, I don't think it's that unusual. Um, and to actually brulee it, brown it, and have some really good, you know, either some soft meringue that you put on the outside of the pie and you brulee or do hard meringues and garnish your pie with hard meringue. I think that would be fun. And maybe there's cinnamon meringue or their Grand Marnier meringue or, you know, they bring in, you introduce, well, cinnamon wouldn't be a new flavor to pumpkin pie, but Grand Marnier might be, um, you know, a, a meringue that has a different tone to it. Yeah, for me, my great-grandmother was always pecan pie and she made a walnut cake that was really more like a walnut pound cake. Okay. And it is very easy to imagine that walnut pound cake. After all the discussion of champagne, that's kind of all I'm thinking that about. That sounds it. good. Mm -hmm. What what I want, like a cold, rich glass of bright, fresh champagne with and not terribly sweet. Like the icing is what would make it sweet. Mm -hmm. Not terribly sweet, but rich, buttery. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, my, my mom's cake was absolutely a very tender, beautiful, light white cake that had ground walnuts in it. So you're talking about pound cake. It's going to be oh, dense I'm, and rich and yes. yummy, yummy. These are two totally different things. Some, and something more your style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also like chocolate mousse. You, you make one of the best flan I've ever had uh, in my life. Mm -hmm. And one of the coolest things, I was just thinking about this for Thanksgiving. We started thinking about pastry. You've done it in a terrine mold a couple of times. Yes. And it turns out really beautifully. I think it's because of the quantity and the control that you have. Mm -hmm. What about a pumpkin flan? Oh, yeah, that would pumpkin be Pumpkin pie is always heavy to me, but a pumpkin flan, uh, a pumpkin it, flan. It, has, it is its own sauce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, yeah. You know, just a glass of Madeira with that. I My think goodness. the only thing you have to be careful with, with pumpkin, and it, let's just say you're going to use canned because, honestly, there's – not anything wrong with that, um, is that pumpkin is watery and it has a weird sort of a grainy texture. And that is not either one of those things are good for a flan. So you're going to have to play with it because I've never made a pumpkin flan. I believe you can. I think it's a good idea, Tony. Um, and I think, uh, you know, when you're, okay, so for a flan, use a quart of cream, seven whole eggs and three yolks. And I've just given you one of my most prized recipes. And that is not from me. That is from a chef mentor that I had, Marcelo Vasquez, who I would know how to make flan if it weren't for him. Um, and that was the recipe, the foundation recipe we used for any flan, whether it was savory or sweet. And um, yeah, you're not going to be able to add too much pumpkin to that. And you're going to have to bump up the eggs. So I would take it up by two yolks. I think I would increase the yolks because of the water content of the pumpkin. And I would absolutely use only cream. I know some people make what is called creme caramel, which is a flan. Uh, flan is just another word for it. Um, and they will use half milk and half cream. 
And uh, yeah, I, th I think with this flan, if you're going to put pumpkin in, and obviously you can put your, you know, you could put a little bit of rum in, you could put a little bit of cinnamon. Um, I would not cut the white sugar down. I, to, and, you know, I'm tempted to say, oh, a little brown sugar in there, maybe 50% brown, 50% white. I think that would be super dangerous. I don't think it's going to turn out. So for pumpkin, I would say one cup of white sugar, one quart of cream, seven whole eggs. I mean, sorry. Yeah, seven whole eggs and five yolks. I would give that a shot and put a pumpkin in until you like the flavor. Uh, season it however you want. And um, yeah, if you're going to make it in a terrine mold, you you caramelize your sugar, you pour it into the bottom. You want there to be, you know, uh, a quarter, a little more than a quarter of an inch of caramel in the bottom of the of the flan mold. That, and then you pour in your flan mixture and you're gonna have to pass that flan mixture with the pumpkin in it. So you're gonna have to pass it through a fine sieve, pour that in, and then it goes into a, well, we call it a hotel pan, but some sort of pan that you can put water in because the, the flan has to cook in a water bath. And I would not have that temperature in that oven be above 280 degrees. It's gonna take a while for that to bake and a still oven at 280, I would say probably about an hour and a half, but keep an eye on it. Once it's being a still oven is a big deal. Yeah. Once it's exactly you do the, the, the sign of a poorly made flan is bubbles in the custard that is too hot or, and too hot and too long. And, um, it has to be a gentle temperature. It has to be a gentle oven. I have made flans in a convected oven before, but it's, it's not the right way to do it. You, you need to make it in a, un an of it doesn't matter if your oven is convected just as long as it can be unconvected as long as the convection can be turned off and you can do it in the still oven and you just gently sh you know at an hour i would check them gently shake um, obviously you don't want to ruin the custard so you just gently shake or tap the 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 mold or if you're if you are doing them individually just you know gently shake the little glass ramekin or pyrex dish whatever you're using and um you know you want to see if it's having any sort of ripple effect and um if it's if it's you don't want it to be hard. You want it to be firm. So that's what you're looking for. The fun thing is the presentation too on turning out that terrine mold. I mean, that's really a nice thing to have for family or guests on Thanksgiving because it does show off really beautifully. Yeah, terrine is that, is that sort of tidier loaf shape that if you turn it out onto like a, a big white porcelain tray or something, it is really beautiful and the, and the, the sauce just kind of, you know, spills out and Mm -hmm. And you can just cut slices, yeah, and serve Super that fun. slice. It's a, it's a, it's a. That would great be gorgeous. Yeah, it would be gorgeous for Thanksgiving. I like that idea. Tony, it seems like it's that time of the year. That's such an exciting time of the year for the wine growers and Beaujolais because it's time for Beaujolais Nouveau. Yes. Yes, and in fact, for the last two months, we've wondered with the <laughs> shipping crisis that's going on. Sure. Is anything going to arrive? Oh gosh! And Magic magically, yay! Magically, Monday <laughs> in the port, oh. they unloaded a container, the first container, and Tuesday some others uh, from some of the different different champagne producers. Wow! Uh, we buy from from uh, Chamet, uh, mm -hmm. who's in Fleury, uh, and their nouveau is always super charming and bright and has richness to it. And <laughs> that nouveau is that first red wine from 2021. So cool. That is coming, mm -hmm. uh, and it is great fun to drink it. It is a year where in Europe, in Beaujolais, there was a lot of frost, so oh. production is very down, oh, wow. and probably going to be very short. So a lot of times you think Nouveau, you have that you know it, it's a gentle red that you can have a little bit chilled, mm 
that takes you through a lot of holiday food and also excellent Thanksgiving wine and also mm. budgetarily popular. Um, but there's not that much that's going to be around. I think it's going to disappear pretty quickly. Okay. But it actually got to us in time. Yay. We had a promotional thing going on that was called uh, Nouveau or Not. <laughs> uh oh. Wow, that's and, great, though. Uh, I'm so glad it Yeah, so it actually, it actually came. All right. And yeah. all right. So you, you haven't had a chance to taste it, or have you? Did taste it yesterday. And okay. yeah, bright, happy. light, charming. Gosh. I, I'm happy first because it actually made it. Yeah. And great. the other thing about it is it's the alcohol is low, chilled. It is really quaffable, happy stuff. Okay. I'm not right. going to pretend like I've not had like big glass of cold Nouveau watching a football game, you know? Right. Well, why not? Sounds good. Well, that's exciting. And the other thing too is you were saying something about Alsatian wines. Oh, yes, I was. That the one, Alsace is to me always one of the, one of the very great wine regions in the world that is often forgotten or not utilized. If I go to restaurants uh, that have, uh, Alsace wine on the list, it's often either a little more mature than some of the other whites. Uh, it's been neglected um, by other people choosing wine. And the the producers, almost to a person, are excellent. Qualitatively for the price, the wines cons- the wines are consistently excellent. There are wines that are that are drier and sweeter. It mostly runs by varietal. There's some producers that tend to produce things that are a bit sweeter than others. Mm-hmm. But usually it's it's safe to think of Alsace wine as being off dry, where there's just a little bit of sugar presence. And a lot of times, and especially through the holidays, that's great for a lot of food. And you can buy wine from Alsace very inexpensively. Some of the th- look for Pinot Blanc uh, or Sylvaner, uh, you know, or Pinot Auxerrois, uh, even before you get into the more famous varietals. Riesling, which is the really long aging, much drier than the German version, but bigger bodied version of Riesling, uh, which can be really magnificent with 10, 15, 20, 30 years of bottle age, which is kind of crazy. Uh, or the richer, sweeter ones, the really very celebratory ones, the ones that do well with rich cooking, uh, Gewürztraminer or Pinot Gris, Pinot Gris, uh, G-R-I-S, is the same grape as in Pinot Grigio, G-R-I-G-I-O. Pinot Gris is Alsace and French translation. Pinot Grigio, both mean gray Pinot. Pinot Grigio is Italy. The further north you go in Italy, the brighter and fresher it is. So if you go there, and for me, buying Pinot Grigio is always go as far north as I can, up to the, the Alto Adige and the northern part of the Alto Adige, like the, the Valle di Zarco and that sort of thing. Um, but one of my very favorite producers in the world is coming into the U.S. Uh, again from years ago named Roly Gassman, G-A-S-S-M-A-N-N. Hmm. And he has seven different varietals coming in, including a, wow. a very interesting Pinot Noir. That's great. Um, from Alsace. And those are remarkable and age-worthy and not terribly expensive. I'd watch out for, uh, I'd watch out for those if you can find Gross them on my, shelves. All right, good. You'll also see one of the better inexpensive sparkling wines of the world from Alsace called Cremant d'Alsace, C-R-E-M-A-N-T. And uh, Sipmac makes an excellent version of that. Okay. So there's your, 
little Alsace reminder. Primer. Good. Good. And I think that's all we have time for. All right. And here comes Louie. <laughs> Hello. What the radio listeners can't see is the cat walking across the screen. <laughs> Jeez, Louie. <laughs> that's great. Everyone I can't believe you didn't walk Louis. on the keyboard. Okay, there he is. All right. Well, some cats are more talented administratively than others. <laughs> Big boy. I mean, his, his mom is a chef. Anyway, <laughs> if you want to listen to this program or other Foreman of Wolf episodes, go to the WIPR website, WIPR.org. Look for the Foreman of Wolf page, and there's a full menu of goodies there. You can drop down your topic. If you want to follow us on social media, follow Chef Cindy Wolf. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter as Chef Wolf. My Instagram is the real Tony Foreman. And you can email a correspondent with us if you like, foremanwolf at wypr.org. And happy Sunday. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs>